Hello and welcome to the 100 Day Writing Challenge, day 68. Yesterday I asked you to have a novel handy when you listened to the day's episode, ideally one by an author whose style you're fond of. If you don't have one with you now, you can go and fetch one, you can pause the podcast. I, I mean, I know you understand how time, space and podcasts work, but I'm just, you know, just for the sake of politeness, saying please do pause me, I'll wait Mainly we're going to be using this to get a sample of text, but if, for example, you're listening to this episode on the bus on the way to work or something, don't worry. Um, I can, in a second, offer you some sample text that you can scribble down and use instead if there's no way of you getting a novel of your own. How accommodating of me. Um, so, uh, once you've got a, uh, a novel and you're ready to begin. Um, we, we've been playing about with the flow of sentences in your writing. You know, the, the, the deliberately manipulating a single variable like positivity or information density to see how it affects the overall feel of a scene. And I've linked this to plot because I think that's all that plot does, really, just on a larger scale. And I think any gains we make on one end of the micro-macro spectrum, we can transfer with very few changes to the other. It's all about experimenting and seeing what happens. Now, I'm not fond of the term experimental fiction as a genre, right? Every story is ex an experiment, whether that experiment is a formal one. You know, what happens if I recount events out of sequence? What happens if the facts of my protagonist's life are unstable and keep shifting? What happens if I voluntarily limit myself by not using the letter E? Or a dramatic experiment, you know, what happens if the person you love is so broken that you can't reach them anymore? What happens if someone lives long enough that they see all their friends die? What happens if a young girl is raised by ninja bears and one day leaves the forest to slay the tyrant who murdered her diplomat father and left her for dead? To call one sort experimental and the other mainstream or commercial, to my mind, is silly and blinkered and does a disservice to all of us, really. The thing about an experiment is it's it's judged a success or failure, not by whether the expected result occurs, but whether you observe what happens and learn from it, right? So does a bowling ball make a good buoyancy aid? You conduct the experiment, all your test subjects in the bowling ball group drown, the control group survive. That's a successful experiment, providing you reflect on the results and conclude that bowling balls are not useful poolside apparatus. I mean, I suspect an ethics committee would have something to say when you submitted that paper for publication, but the small-mindedness and petty morality of the scientific community is another story. Every author benefits from having a little bit of the eccentric inventor in them. A text reveals its secrets when you break it apart. Sure, I can teach you how to replicate the structures of successful fiction, just about, and, and we're getting to the stage where you can start applying all these skills you've been training to um, to a framework, you know, but experimentation, taking a story to pieces, mutating it, applying new rules to it and seeing what changes and what survives the transition. Not only does that sometimes lead you to, to startling chance discoveries, cool little moves you can use in your novel to shock and delight the reader and put them on no notice that this is not your average story. Not only can it sometimes be something that sort of generates uh, new whole new parts of the plot, you know, that makes you go, maybe the story can be about this. You know, it can be wonderful. I, I think it, but uh, as well as communicating to the reader, you know, keep on your toes, anything can happen. I think playing with language like this is an essential reminder that you are the author of this text, not its editor. 
This is your world, your book, and you get to choose the rules that govern it. If you want a child narrator to keep interrupting and correcting a detail you've just mentioned, you're allowed to do that. If you want to tell one character's story backwards, you're allowed to do that. If you want to insert fragments of poems from every dogs or give precise dimensions for every tree the protagonist sees, you can. Not everything you try will produce compelling fiction, and that's fine. And sometimes I do these things myself, you know, and, and sometimes I do these things and I leave readers behind. And that's another choice you get to make. It's a choice you'll have to make. Whether you acknowledge you're making the decision or not, it's one you make, right? Pioneers rarely hit it in the middle of the bat. Often when you innovate, you're limiting your audience, right? Best-selling novels are rarely innovative. Sometimes they are, but more often they're working in familiar territory, especially formally, right? Which means that they can be understood and enjoyed by the widest possible audience. You might decide, as an artist, that the cost of shutting some people out is not worth the freedom of trying new things. I don't think it's helpful to ascribe a morality to this, by the way. Often people writing more formally experimental stuff will talk about their work as if, you know, they're developing a life-saving vaccine while everyone else is just making grilled cheese sandwiches. And that's just pompous claptrap. But it is fun and delightful to understand that you're not the editor of your work, but it's author. I think that bears repeating, right? You are not the editor of your work. You're its author. And you have the right to do whatever the flip you like. We get stuck when we forget our sovereignty. We forget we're allowed to play and that absorbed experimentation it is not only deeply pleasurable, but it's a reliable source of innovations that will delight your readers too. So if a metaphor is about changing a thing into another thing to deepen our understanding of the original thing then and then today is pushing that metaphoric principle to the next level we're going to swap core building blocks of a story for different ones and see what new stories we can create so i want you to open the novel you've brought today to the first page of the story what you're going to do is take the first sentence, or if it's only like one word or something, the first two sentences, you know, like just whatever the first reasonable sort of unit of text is. And then we're going to create new versions, borrowing the structure, but switching out the nouns, verbs, adjectives and adverbs. So that's all the things, actions, describing words and words that describe how something was done. You can swap pronouns if you like to, or leave them in, up to you. So let's say, for example, the book you're working with is 1984, George Orwell's patchy dystopian novel opens with the, do you hear that? I, that's, 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 that's me, that's me roasting George Orwell. That's how cocky I'm feeling this morning. Ho ho! Or... Tim's saying that 1984 isn't a perfect novel. What a cheeky monkey I am. Right, So, but it opens with this line. It was a cold, bright day in April and the clocks were striking 13. So the key words there are cold, bright, day, April, clocks striking and 13 with it as an optional extra. And notice, I, I, I just want to point out this kind of primacy recency effect that I was talking about, that the, the, the sentence ends with the punchline 13. Nothing else in that sentence is particularly worthy of note, but the clock's striking 13. That isn't what the conventional 12-hour AM-PM clock would strike. Whoa! We're in a new world, but that's the punchline of the sentence. Because you could have put... The clocks were striking 13. It was a cold, bright day in April, right? 
But the fact that it's April doesn't have any bearing on the story whatsoever. Um, so he's ended with the most salient word. Just pointing out. So anyway, you take that sentence. You could change it to we're swapping out the nouns, adjectives, adverbs, verbs, whatever you want. <clears throat> and possibly the pronoun, if you like, as well. It was a strange, dank evening in Tokyo and the ghosts were chasing Nigel. There was an acrid, greasy mist in Lowtown and the slum fires were raging higher. She was a vast emerald dragon in repose and the children were offering tribute. Now, I, I, again, I've made all of those genre-ish, but you don't have to do that at all. Over the next 10 minutes, you're going to come up with as many permutations of the first sentence um, from this novel you've got as you can, switching out the content. It doesn't have to make sense. We're just throwing ideas together and seeing how they sound. So um, let's say you, you've got Jane Austen in front of you, not um, not the Jane Austen. Uh, presumably that would either involve necromancy or some incredible uh, violation of the sanctity of her grave but i mean one of her novels uh, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife oh jane how droll you could change that to it is a miracle rarely observed that a drunken wretch in town on a late weeknight sometimes becomes against his will an angel or i am a cake lightly sugared that an ambitious baker in competition with her bitter rival regrettably has laced with arsenic or whatever. What I think doing this is going to start revealing to you is we're trying to get a feel for the cadences of these sentences, their deep structure, regardless of semantic content. So you can either use the first few sentences in the book you've got, swapping out words and creating new lines, or if you haven't got a novel in front of you, um, you can use the two examples I've just given, Orwell and Austin. I'll say them again, so get ready if you need to write them down. Are, are, you, are you ready to write them down if you need them? Right, here we go. It was a cold, bright day in April and the clocks were striking 13. And the Austin sentence which you may well know by heart already. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. There you go. OK, so as always, I will give you 10 minutes. Try as many variations of whichever sentence you're working on as you can. Ready? Three, two, one, go.
Okay, that's your lot. How did you find today's monkey business? Are you surprised by any of your opening sentences? Do any of them suggest a story to you, something that might tempt you to write a second sentence or a third? How do they compare to the original sentences you were using? I really enjoy doing this exercise, especially with authors who write very differently to me, um, because it sometimes produces very interesting rhythms. Uh, Content-wise, I don't think anyone who didn't know what I'd done or where I'd nicked from would recognise the original source, but they can create some really, really odd alien effects. I think first lines, frankly, are a really useful place to invest some time farting about because they carry such a burden of semantic and tonal freight, but also because a, a good first line, you know, one that has intriguing details or an interesting tone, can be a great spur for you as an author to power on into the story. Because you want to create a little house for this first sentence to live in anyway. You want to create a world where, they, where this sentence is possible. What you were just doing was sort of taking apart some examples that probably, if they're in a published novel and is one that you like, they probably work well and seeing if you can find an underlying mechanism you can nick. Some creative writing teachers suggest going so far as, you know, opening a favourite novel of yours and literally typing out whole sections as a way of understanding the voice. I Look, if that works for you, great. Um, I've tried doing it. I I, I did not get the, res, the the promised effect that I would start to feel like I understood what it was like to be novelist x i just felt like i was a stenographer um but i think this is a way of actually getting that effect reliably getting a sense of the timing the cadence the tone of sentences um you know uh, although you know look if it works for you fantastic you know it seems a bit silly to me to just copy stuff out but silliness is often the doorway to incredible breakthroughs. So who knows? If you if you want to do that, um, I, I'm not cocking a snook at you. I'm not judging you. Um, I just think that this method is a way of making sure that you're processing it on multiple levels. Remember, first lines don't just appear at the start of a novel. The opening of every chapter of every new scene has, it has to start somehow, right? In a way that we're opening uh, after a scene break, there's a kind of soft reset and we're somewhere new. And I think thinking of the opening of each new scene as an opportunity to re-engage the reader's attention, to go, here's why you should read on, means you can have some real fun thinking up the most interesting bids. Right, great work. Your ace. Um, let some of these weird ideas that you've been coming up with percolate through your mind. And I'll see you tomorrow. The 100 Day Writing Challenge is made possible with the kind support of Arts Council England.